Great American Ballpark. It's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Welcome to the very first episode of the Better Off Red Podcast. I'm your host, Red's Assistant Director of Media Relations and author of the Red's blog, Better Off Red, Jamie Ramsey. Since this is podcast number one, allow me to take a second to introduce you to what we have in store for you. If you're familiar with the blog Better Off Red, this podcast will be an audio extension of that. My goal with the Better Off Red brand is to be the back of the red cereal box. Funny, relaxed, and engaging, all with baseball as a backdrop. As a Reds employee, I'll present you with Reds news, updates, and an occasional peek behind the curtain. What I won't do is speculate on personnel moves, offer uninformed analysis, analysis, or scrutinize the Reds team. Instead, this podcast will be an alternative to all of that, highlighted each week with a special guest whom I think you'll find interesting and entertaining. Each podcast will be available on Reds.com, iTunes, and Ramsey.mlblogs.com, also known as Better Off Red. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, or the blog for that matter, you can tweet them to me, at JamieBlog. That's J-A-M-I-E-B-L-O-G. So with that out of the way, let's get on with the show. J.D. McPherson performing the title track from his most recent album, Let the Good Times Roll, available now on iTunes. A big thanks to Mr. McPherson for providing the music on this week's Better Off Red podcast. Now, let's get into some Reds news. The Reds recently announced changes to the 2016 Major League coaching staff. Mark Riggins replaces Jeff Pico as pitching coach. Tony Jaramillo takes over for Lee Tinsley as assistant hitting coach. Jim Riggleman moves from the third base coaching box to serve as Brian Price's bench coach. Billy Hatcher will coach third base, and Freddie Benavides is the new first base coach. Riggins spent the past four seasons as the Reds' minor league pitching coordinator and previously served as the major league pitching coach for both the Cubs and Cardinals. Jaramillo has been a hitting coach in the Reds' minor league system since 2008. Bullpen coach Mac Jenkins hitting coach Don Long, catching coordinator Mike Stefanski, and bullpen catcher Dustin Hughes will all return in 2016 to those positions. MLB reporter Mark Sheldon will feature Riggins in an upcoming story on Reds.com, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Seven Cincinnati Reds farmhands are currently participating as members of the Peoria Javelinas in the 2015 Arizona Fall League. They are right-handed pitcher Steven Johnson, right-handed pitcher Lane Thompson, right-handed pitcher Nick Travieso, right-handed pitcher Zach Weiss, catcher Chad Wallach, infielder Alex Blandino, and outfielder Philip Irvin. The prestigious Arizona Fall League is active through the end of November. You can follow all of the action on MLB.com and on Twitter at MLB 
AZ Folly. And when the winter wind is blowing cold, I got a big old heart. One malicious remark just might hit me like a lightning bolt. They said I was our guest this week is a 13-year Major League veteran and two-time All-Star. He played for the Reds from 1998 through 2001, including that magical 96-win season in 1999. He finished his career with an impressive 291 batting average and an 826 OPS. He's known by some as the Meat Hook. Here's Dimitri Young. What's up, Dimitri Young? How are you? Hey, Jamie, I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing great, man. You're uh, you are, have the 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 privilege, or I should say, the honor, of being our very first Better Off Red podcast guest. Well, if you could see me, I'll be blushing right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you're probably asking why. I don't know, but uh, I'm going to tell you that you are, uh, you know, one of my favorite personal favorite uh, players, uh, all around great guy. Uh, I think we first met when I was on the ground crew and you had come over from St. Louis in 1998. And, uh, you know, uh, ever since then you were, you were nothing but a nice guy to me and the guys on the ground crew. And you'll always be one of my favorites. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, that comes from good upbringing and you know what? Baseball is what I do is not who I am. So I always believe in treating people equal. Awesome. Well, tell us what's going on with you right now. What are you doing? And uh... well, um, I would say I'm enjoying a retired life, but for those people who actually worked for twenty, thirty years, I'm kind of mocking them. So I actually been keeping myself busy. One, I was coaching with the uh, Santa Barbara Foresters at a California Collegiate League team. It's like the Cape Cod League or the Alaskan League, and a lot of college players come here to California and play during the summer since we have such beautiful weather. And um, coach there as a hidden coach and um, saw a 30-point improvement in their hidden. And then with MLB, I've been doing the Breakthrough Series and the Elite Development um, Invitational. I'll explain each of them to you. The Breakthrough Series is a showcase for soon-to-be seniors and they're African-American, or I like to use the word black. <laughs> but... <laughs> But it's there for them, and it's a showcase. They do the 60 time. They throw from the outfield, throw from the infield, get top time, swing the bat, and then they play in the doubleheader. And the one in Cincinnati, the young gentlemen actually go to a Reds game, and they get that experience of what it's like to be a big leaguer. And they get the young men's juices flowing. And then the Elite Development Invitational, this started this year, MLB put this together, and it was approximately 150-plus predominantly young blacks from the age of 12 to 17. And it's a two-week camp where it's basically we teach them the game. Mm-hmm. And, all the, and all the coaches are former MLB players, a lot of them you heard of, like Marquise Grissom, yeah. Lee Smith, another former Red, Michael Tucker was there. <laughs> Lenny Webster, yeah, uh, Kenny Landro. I mean, there was over 20, 20 coaches that gave their time and effort to help the interest of young black players going. Because during that age of 12 to 17, where the game starts getting more expensive with the travel ball and, mm-hmm. and going out of state and then the equipment on top of that, 
you know, there's an interest that gets lost, so we're trying to keep it going. So I've been a part of that for the last couple of years. And, um, and out here in Camarillo where the sun is shining, it's 80 degrees, and I have the privilege of doing lessons across the street at my dad's house and over at the Baton Cages who's on first in Oxnard, and I teach the young players how to hit, not just hit mentally, or physically, but psychologically, and give them life life lessons on top of all that. Oh, well, that's outstanding. Did now did Major League Baseball approach you about volunteering to do this, or is this something that you uh, you kind of did on your own? Uh, MLB came to me a couple of um, what was it, 2014, about the breakthrough series, and uh, and a fellow Red um, Eric Davis is a part of the breakthrough series as well. We've been coaching together for the last couple of years. And um, they approached me about it, and I'm doing stuff with them again next year. So my feet are knee-deep in that, but <laughs> there's always that opportunity that I would like to get back in the game and, and become a hitting coach of some sort yeah, or a manager. Who knows? I think you'd be pretty good at it. Well, that's, that's what I've been told. I'm just waiting for the opportunity. <laughs> Now, you know, you talked about something that, you know, is a, I guess, kind of an issue uh, that's, you know, grows year by year about, you know, young African-American kids playing baseball. And, you know, there we've seen a decline in that demographic over the last, I don't know, what, 10, 20 years. Is it something that's, uh, how important is it for you personally to keep this, you know, as an African-American man, to keep keep that kind of legacy alive where, you know, we bring in these African-American athletes to, to continue a, a tradition of playing baseball. Well, the whole, the whole basis of keeping us in the game goes no further than 1947, Jackie Robinson. Mm -hmm. This guy paved the way and he was the right person to break the color barrier and make it to where, it's not a problem for us to go out there and play with other people. He made it to where we shouldn't quit on ourselves. If there's a goal that we really want, we should achieve that. And I think that got lost in the in the whole going to play football, the go play basketball because it's a cheaper sport, one. And and number two, the marketing. Marketing kind of makes them gravitate towards, towards those sports. Mm -hmm. Now, for us, getting the young kids back into it, they have to see more African-American players giving their time and efforts because some view it as a white man's game. And um, fair or unfair, that's how some people view that. But when they see us making the effort and MLB making the effort, in time, that should turn in our favor to be able to have more players out there and have more to choose from because this game is now global. It's, mm -hmm. it's no longer an American game. You have people coming over from from Asia. You have them coming down from South America, of course, the islands and the Caribbean islands. And who knows? Pretty soon there's going to be more coming out of Europe. I have a Russian, an Indian. Who Who knows? <laughs> but that's what the game has come to. So if we can have more interest here and keep 
keep it going because at the age of 12, 13, 14, the game gets tougher. And it's a lot easier if you play multiple sports. And a lot of these young men play multiple sports and they love baseball. But they get turned away from baseball because they're so-called raw. Yeah. And, and raw is basically an experience. Mm-hmm. And if an athlete who plays multiple sports has the talent to be able to play baseball, just hone his skills and play baseball, you'll have a lot more phenomenal athletes. But they get turned away from it because people make them feel dumb for playing two sports, where actually they're smart because they have the intelligence to dominate in two sports. Right. Now, how would you sell the game? Like if, you know, you have a kid that, you're, you know, you would, you're trying to get to the batting cages and he's like, ah, you know, I'd rather play football or basketball. I really don't know much about baseball. How would, how would Dimitri Young sell this game to that young man? Oh, very easy. Very, very easy. Baseball, you get to play every single day. Whereas in football, you play once a week. So if you have a bad game, think about how long you get to think about how bad that game was. Basketball, <laughs> what, every three or four days? Mm-hmm. But baseball is every day. You have to have amnesia almost. <laughs> you get bumped in the head. Oh, what happened yesterday? I forgot. Let's go play another game. <laughs> so, you always have a, so you always have an opportunity to do something big, to do something cool out there. And... There's not a lot of wear and tear, so to speak, where football contact, you get hit in the knee one time, bye-bye, end of sport. Mm-hmm. Basketball, well, you have to be pretty tall or pretty doggone quick. Mm-hmm. Baseball, you can be tall, you can be short, you can be skinny, you can be fat, you can be young, you can be old. <laughs> as long as you have the time to go out there and play baseball, you will be allowed to play baseball. That's how I would sell it. Yeah, that's pretty good. Hey, look, we've all had some, you know, rocky times in our lives. We've had to recover from some setbacks, including yourself, and I think you'll be the first to agree with that. But you seem yep. you seem to have really gotten yourself to a very happy health and healthy stage in your life. How hard was it to get there, and, and just how great do you feel these days? Well, you know, when, when it's always a lifestyle change, of course it's going to be tough, especially when you feel there's nothing to change. But I knew I had a lot to change starting. Well, I don't drink anymore. It's been four and a half years. So with saying that, people will remember me as being a husky, and that's being nice. I can say fat, ball player. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I weigh 225 now. I'm type 2 diabetic, so I have to be healthy. So there are things that I cut out, alcohol, one. And then number two, surround myself with good people. Yeah. When you're, when you're around good people, good things happen. When you surround yourself with bad people, well, you know, sometimes good people make bad choices. Mm-hmm. That's my case. And now, being 42 years old, looking back, I serve as a teacher now, an educator with the young students and that I have as clients that come to me for hidden. That's what it's all about for me, and to be able to give life lessons to not only for them to be good ball players, but more importantly to be good people. Yeah. That's uh, you know, and it's it's been incredible. I mean, not you were never a bad guy, but these days you have taken things you've you've I think what I see in you and what I think the fans see in you as well is 
is just how hard you've worked to get in this spot that you are now. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy and you've lost a boatload of weight. Uh, you're doing, you know, so many good things in the community and teaching these kids that, you know, it's a credit to you and, you know, how hard you've worked. Yeah. And you know, and it's a never ending process. This is every single day. And you know, it's, it's not a problem for me. I can go to a restaurant bar, sit at the bar, but I order sparkling water. Mm-hmm. Or I order a soda. You know, I don't have those shakes or anything because, one, I've always been stubborn, so that was both a positive and a negative trait for me. So <laughs> that's when when I was going through my struggles, that was the stubborn part. I was fighting with myself, and once I was able to let go, things started happening. Weight loss, uh, you know, my fiance, and, and that's another thing. Surrounding myself with a good woman, Mm-hmm. And you can attest to this. Every great man has a great woman <laughs> leading the way. You got that right, man. Hey, how much late? How much weight did you lose? I'm at two twenty five now, and at my at my height, I was three twenty five, and that was when I was with the Nationals. And, and it should be noted that even though if you were at three hundred twenty five pounds. You were hitting 300 and making the all-star game. Not to condone, you know, being overweight, but you seem to have had that natural ability to hit a baseball. Yeah, they always say you can roll out of bed and hit. But uh, that was a cool statement. But during that time, I was trying to learn how to control the insulin. And so my weight really ballooned. When I was in Detroit, I was around two. 6270. I was husky, but I was still able to move around like no problemo. Mm-hmm. But once I got to Washington and, and and was injecting myself with insulin and trying to control all of that, mm-hmm. had no control of the weight. And ultimately, that was the reason why I retired because I had no control of it whatsoever. Wound up tearing my quad. I have mm-hmm. full control, obviously, now and see the doctor regularly. And, you know, everything is fine with me. But that was the struggle of being able to accept that I have type two and what am I going to do about it? Am I going to have limbs chopped off and stuff? I think not. Right. So you, you were proactive and, and did your thing. What, what you got any tips for the, for those of us that are looking to lose weight or what's your, what's your secret? What do you, how do you, you know, maintain your, your healthy lifestyle? Walk simply, doing cardio I did um, I like the elliptical yeah and instead of doing it for time I'll do it in steps or strides mm-hmm. I'll start out with 70 well 5,000 steps and then I'll increase it to 7,500 steps then 10,000 and this is at one time and that, and, and, it's, and it's no more than a, a, let me see 12,500 was around about an hour and 15 minutes and then I would increase it to twice a day doing that. Mm. Then I got to 15,000 steps twice a day. And instead of dieting, mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to cut out this, I'm going to cut out that, I just, it was portion control. Ah. You know, it was just smaller mm-hmm. portions throughout the day. Many of those uh, folks listening to this bo- podcast remember when you'd get a hit, usually it was a double, and usually your helmet would fly off your head that you'd slide in a second, pop up, 
and extend your arms, one just a little longer than the other, and waggle your fingers toward your teammates in the dugout. It became yep. it became your thing. Well, the Pirates, they began doing that this season, and finally it was revealed by Andrew McCutcheon that you, in fact, were the inspiration behind it. You get he Andrew gave you rightful credit. Now, what I'm hoping for is that you'll tell everyone after all these years the story behind the Dimitri Young hand gesture. Well, you put me on the spot, and I am more than willing to tell the story. <laughs> this is a great story. All right, we're going we're going back 2001 spring training. We're in Lakeland, Florida. Just finished playing the Tigers. Don't remember we won or lost. Spring training is pretty irrelevant. Anyway, Pokey Reese, Donnie Sadler, and myself, we're amongst the first people on the bus. Matter of fact, when we got on the bus, Deion Sanders, primetime, NFL Hall of Fame Deion Sanders, who's making a comeback, is already on the bus, sitting down, he's probably in the middle aisles of the bus on a, on a driver's side. Mm-hmm. He's reading the scripture. He's reading the Bible. And as we get on the bus, we see two look like they're 16, 17-year-old girls, and they were trying to get Dion's attention the entire time. They were yelling and, Dion, Dion, Dion! <laughs> Meanwhile, us three are sitting there. We, you know, we have some choice words. We're talking amongst ourselves about these young girls. Mm-hmm. And um, Dion calmly puts the Bible down, stands up, looks at the girls, does the hand gesture that I do now, and mm-hmm. goes, Lord, help them, Lord! <laughs> and then, calmly sat back down and picked up the Bible and started reading. Meanwhile, the three guys that walked on the bus, <laughs> Folky, Donnie, and myself, burst out in laughter. <laughs> We laughed for about a good five minutes. I mean, that, I mean, that was one of those ones that you barely heard. You get a headache, you're sweating. And I got up, I told Dion, I said, you know what? I'm still in that front. I'm taking that from What did so Dion say? He was like, all right, all right, there, young bud. And then went back to reading. Three, about two, three days later, we're playing the Phillies at um, Jack Russell Stadium. Not that new nice place that the Phillies play in spring training now, mm-hmm. but the dump that they played in forever. Right, right. I, I hit a triple. Yes, I did hit a triple. <laughs> and got the third. Slid in first, and the dugout's on the and our dugout's on the third base side. So when I slid in the third, I get on my knees and go, ah, and start doing it, and that was the birth of it. <laughs> Did but you t- now? Yeah. Let's fast forward because I got traded after the 2001 season to Detroit, mm-hmm. and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Detroit, but after my disastrous 2006 season, Jim Bowden took a chance on me, like he does with everybody, mm-hmm. and gave me an opportunity with the Nationals. And when I made the opening day roster with the Nationals, Jim Bowden came up to me and said, "You got to bring that back." <laughs> You got to bring them helping hands back. And I was like, okay. He said, you got to bring excitement to this team. This team doesn't know excitement. I want you to be the old you. So he gave he gave me the opportunity to be 
the old Dimitri Young, and I had absolute fun with him. Matter of fact, the picture that Andrew McCutcheon's talking about in the in the locker room, mm-hmm. there's a bobblehead of me doing that. Is that and right? I had a bobblehead made in 2008 <laughs> with the hand. Hey man, you be, you began your career with the Cardinals, got traded to the Reds for none other than Jeff Brantley, who's a Reds broadcaster, as you know. Uh, your first year with the Reds, you made an immediate impact. You batted three ten in 144 games with 14 homers and 48 doubles. Is it safe to say you immediately felt comfortable when you arrived in Cincinnati? Actually, it, it wasn't as comfortable as one would think because when I got traded over from St. Louis to Cincinnati, when any, any young player gets traded early in their career, they feel like trash. They feel like the team that they were drafted by and made it to the big leagues with, all of a sudden they don't want you anymore. Mm-hmm. And that and that was kind of the feeling that I had when I got over there. And so during spring training, the first couple of days, I, I was pretty much not smiling, just going about going about it business style. No smile, just come in there, take my ground balls. And Barry Larkin, a.k.a. El Capitan, the Hall of Famer mm-hmm. came up to me and and we had a brief conversation. I was taking ground ball and he goes, well, he reintroduced himself. And he was like, hey, you know, everybody here knows you and they say that you're a good guy and you, and you like to have fun and stuff, but I don't see you having fun. And he said, look out here, look at everybody. And as I look out there, I swear to God, like a family barbecue. Because everybody, everybody was having a great time taking fly balls in the outfield. They're laughing, making good throws to the infield, watching the infielders take ground balls, and, and guys hitting it. It, it. it felt like home. Mm-hmm. How home would you go home and you're comfortable? Right. And, and so he told me, if I don't see you smiling and having a good time, because we know you work hard. That's obvious. But we want you to have fun out here. And if you don't have fun and you're not you're not making any money yet, I'm gonna find you heavily. <laughs> All right, uh and then that's when the big smile came and that's when when I started playing. Cause when I was in St. Louis, I had Tony LaRusso as a manager. That's not exactly a person that you would like to have as a manager as a rookie. <laughs> as a veteran ball player, all day long. As a rookie, nope. Why not? Tony LaRusso is a winning type manager, and so when you are called up to the big leagues, no errors, no bad at bats. He wants you to play serious baseball. Mm-hmm. And I didn't exactly have fun my rookie year in, in St. Louis. So when I was traded, yeah, I felt hurt because I felt like they put a label on me and I would have been stuck with that label. Mm-hmm. But then after Larkin said all that to me, it was like, I got a new beginning. I have a new beginning as a ball player. Now I can be the player that I want to be instead of trying to be a player that I think the Cardinals want me to be. Hey, speaking of those those days in the in the late nineties, how much did you enjoy that nineteen ninety nine season when the Reds won ninety six games? That was one incredible year. Possibly my favorite year in the big leagues. Reason being, that was team baseball at its best. Even though Greg Vaughn hit 45 home runs and was the vocal leader, everybody played a part in us 
swing. There was the attitude that came with it. Some of the goofy guys like Denny Nagel coming over. I mean, good God. <laughs> what, what, a, what a fun guy. Can't leave out Mike Cameron. Wow. You had Pete Harnish on that team as well? Oh, yeah, that guy was a goof. <laughs> and, and watching Pokey Reese play some incredible second base, that, that, that year was so fun that it hurt so bad when we lost to the Mets in that one game playoff. It hurt so bad. And had, had we beat the Mets, had, you know what? Had we won two out of three in Milwaukee, we wouldn't have this conversation because I would be sitting here with a 1999 World Series ring. Because <laughs> remember that year we ran through the Atlanta Braves staff like they were putty. That's right, yeah. Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, Tom Glavin, they didn't have anything for us. You mentioned that Milwaukee series. You know, the reason that the, the 99 Reds had to play that one-game playoff against the Mets and Al Leiter was because uh, the Reds uh, you, you dropped two of three in Milwaukee. And what I remember about that series, and I'm sure you do as well, was the weather uh, in Milwaukee for, for that series. In fact, you guys were delayed for several hours before you played that third game in which was a must win and you guys pulled it out. Yeah, yeah, we put ourselves in such a bad situation. That game was supposed to start around two in the afternoon, uh, one in the afternoon, and we didn't start till like nine, ten o'clock at night. And then after we won, flew back home and had that one game playoff against the Mets. And nothing against Steve Paris. But that's who we threw against the Mets, and the Mets gave us Al Leiter. Yeah, Al Leiter was a uh, he was a you ran into a buzzsaw that day with him, and of course, you know, kind of the uh, the stage was set when Edgardo Alfonso, I believe, is a first inning home run, and you guys yeah. had to play from behind the rest of the game. You mentioned Greg Vaughn. How important was he to the team that year? I think Greg Vaughn was. I would I would say he was the missing piece for jump-starting a lot of careers. Because the attitude that he brought in just for that one year, when I went to Detroit, I adopted a little bit of that attitude because he he'll hit a he'll strike out, mm-hmm. he'll come back to the dugout with that big dip in his bottom lip, and he'll look at <laughs> and he'll go, oh, he's going to give it up. Oh, he's going to give it up. <laughs> Talking about the pitcher. And, and when you hear stuff like that, Cause I'm used to, you know, guys shoving up our behinds. It's like, oh god, we gonna lose. Yeah. This guy's like, uh, uh-uh. no, we're not gonna quit. What are you quitting for? I'm not quitting. You better not quit. So, with that being said, he was showing us the way to win. Cause the year before, he was just in the World Series with the San Diego Padres. Mm-hmm. And so now, that attitude with. Barry Larkin's calm, cool demeanor, you know, being able to, to teach. He was able to teach more on the slide with Greg Vaughn being the rock. And so uh, Sean Casey with a breakout year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pokey Reese with a breakout year. Um, I had a great second half. Jeffrey Hammond. Oh, yeah. Michael Tucker. Uh, Mike Cameron got, had a nice bounce back from getting traded from um, – the white sack. Mm-hmm. And and so what we put together that year and Scott Williamson went in rookie of the year. I mean, we had a lot of pieces there and wow. 
the mistake that Jack McKeon made with the pitching, he did not do in 2003 when the Marlins won it. So that man learned from his mistake as well, and he has him a big, fat gangster ring. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that Marlins World Series ring's hideous. Yeah, it is. Uh, you played, you know, you you mentioned a lot of guys there. You played with some uh, a lot of interesting characters. What are uh, give us some names of some of the ones that uh, that most stand out to you? Some memorable ones. Mm, well, first and foremost, you always have Mister Mister Aaron Boone. Guy can impersonate anybody. <laughs> Not to mention, he looks like Johnny Knoxville. And of course, he. I mean, if anybody watches ESPN, knows that he the best commentator there is for baseball, bar, bar none. I love the way that he explains the game. He uses a lot of humor. And, you know, with his pedigree, that job was made for him. Then there's Sean Casey. He's on MLB Network, and he brings that same excitement that he did as a player. Pokey Reese, the most intriguing person I've ever met. The things that... The, the things that he's been through in life before he got to the big leagues and being able to do what he did during the time he was there, he was always one of my all-time favorites. Then there's the captain, Barry Larkin. He showed me how to become a big league ball player. Then there's Reggie Sanders. What a nice guy. Mm-hmm. But he, know, he, he, he was two different people. He was a nice guy, but then he put on the uniform and his muscles backed up his, his play. Uh, boy, I feel like I'm leaving out so many people. Oh, he, uh, he, Danny Graves. Yeah, yeah. The baby face assassin. Yeah. You know, it was good seeing him, and now we do the uh, Red Fantasy Camp together. And speaking of Red Fantasy Camp, when are you going to come out there and um, <laughs> do it for a week? They uh, they sent me in 2010 to go out there. to. to I was kind of embedded to, to play on the Fantasy Camp and uh, – and write about it on the blog. And after that, I think they had seen enough and sent me back, <laughs> sent me back to Cincinnati. But, uh, you know, you know, man, it is, it is a great time doing that. And, you know, those guys that are listening or gals, even nowadays that get to play, if you have any, any desire to do that, do it at least once. Cause it's, it's unbelievable, unforgettable. You got Dimitri Young, uh, you know, teaching you how to hit. It's it's amazing. Yeah, this, let me see. This will be my fourth year coming up this this year doing the fantasy camp, and the people that you meet there. Some of the guys been there for twenty four, twenty five yeah. years, and 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 it turned into a fraternity. Yep. You know, when these guys, I look forward to coming down there and, and seeing the guys catching up with them. And going through the whole process, having the batting practice, and then the coaches, we have the draft, and and seeing these people every day beat themselves up, <laughs> absolutely beat themselves to pieces, tearing. I mean, they tear their hamstrings. They don't have minor injuries. They have injuries where they have to go home. <laughs> exactly. I saw. I saw. I saw guys. My first year, first day. Tried to catch a pop up. He wound up getting like 15 stitches above his right eye. <laughs> but you know what they say? It's the best week of my life. Yeah, that's right. And it is. I mean, it's amazing. And I was told by 
Ron Oster and Todd Newman and Senior and uh, Herm Winningham, my first time doing it, he said, you know what? All they want to hear is stories. You just be yourself and, and shoot the breeze with them, and they'll love you. Yeah. Because I was told that not everybody is good for a fantasy camp. Sometimes you get some of the some of the upper echelon players to do that, and they kind of be they kind of standoffish and mm-hmm. unapproachable, and that's the exact opposite of what you have to be for fantasy camp. Yeah, they those guys just want to be a big leaguer. They want to interact with big league guys, just be one of the guys. And you know, the Reds, to their credit, do an amazing job of getting just the right mix of personalities in there. And I think you and Gravy are uh, huge additions to that whole enterprise. Oh, yeah, and Corky Miller joined last year, and his him and um, Ted Powers' team wound up winning. So he got rookie luck already. <laughs> Corky's team won? Yeah, Corky and Ted Powers' team. I was with Joe Price this past year. We we were one out away from winning and advancing, and the wheels fell apart. Guy made an error, then another guy. And these two were two automatic outs wound up getting their game-winning hits against us. Oh, that's cool. That's what it's all about. Yeah, that was that was baseball right there. How, how great is Joe Joe Price? Isn't he a good guy? Not a good guy. Great guy. Yeah. Just a all-around calm demeanor. You know, he, he seems like that, that, that concerned dad that you can go <laughs> up to and talk to about anything. Like, I can bounce things off of him and just get some great advice. Yeah. And he's a successful businessman these days as well. Yes, he is. Hey, let me ask you, uh, do you have any regrets? And if you had a chance to go back in time to begin your baseball career all over again, what, if anything, would you do differently? What would I do differently if I had the opportunity? I think I would give more time in the gym and learn more about the nutritional value to be able to get the best out of me. Mm-hmm. Because you know, when you, what I did was absolutely phenomenal, especially being an overweight ball player my entire career. Yeah. You know, I look back and I'm like, how in the world did I do that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if I had a chance to do it all over again, I would love to play in the shape that I'm in right now, 225, 230, and well, I was a lot faster when I was younger. Mm-hmm. You know, Marion Jones went to school with me for two years at Real Mason High School, and I raced her and beat her. Is that right? Dimitri that, Young that, beat Marion Jones. That's true. <laughs> wow, that's pretty good. So, uh, so I used to, I used to be fast. I ran a six five sixty in high school, but I like food more. Right. Yeah. It's the wrong food, and now with the with what the organizations are doing now, like a lot of teams are going organic food. Yeah. They don't have Twinkies and candy bars and things like that in the locker room for these guys to to get sluggish or anything mm-hmm. like that. They're putting food in to keep them nourished. Like if I had that back then, I mean, who's to say what my life would be? But I like it. I like what my life is right now. But if I had a chance to do it all over again, I would definitely be more into the nutritional part of it. I know you're an avid baseball card collector. Give us an idea of what kind of collection you have and how long you've been at it. Well, I no longer have the collection anymore. You don't? 
grow. I sold it uh, three years ago to start my foundation, which I serve as a bridge between kids that can play but can't pay and opportunity. Well, about that. Are, so at least it went to the you know to a good cause, right? Yes, yes. And what I was collecting, and actually, when I started collecting the PSA 10 rookie cards, it actually started in Cincinnati. Because one, uh, I want to say, well, after the 98 season, we stayed in uh, Cincinnati, and my ex-wife was like, you need a hobby. <laughs> you know, because after the end of the season, I was I was turning into Jabba the Hutt. I go eat some Crystal Burger, White Castle, <laughs> and get back to the house and watch college football or basketball. Right. It was, I was just being lazy. But back when was it? I did a card show with Danny Graves, and I wanted a Pete Rose rookie card. And I want to say that was early, before the year. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted was a Pete Rose rookie card. And so it happened. This was in 99. So I started collecting that after the 99 season. All I wanted was a Pete Rose rookie. I knew nothing about PSA, the grading process, or anything like that. So I got a PSA 8 Pete Rose from the guy for doing the car signing with Danny Graves. Wow. And so the ex-wife was like, you need a hobby. So got on eBay. I started looking up cars because I was always a car collector growing up. Yeah. Not always collected rookie cars, but not graded cars. I knew nothing about that. So... Looked up PSA, did my research behind it. I was like, okay. So then I started getting PSA 8s. Then I upgraded to PSA 9 rookies. Real quick, Dimitri, explain explain to those listening what a PSA is. All right, PSA is Professional Sports Authenticators, and they are a grading service to grade the cards that you send it that you send in based on the condition of the cars, the edges, the corners, does it have great eye appeal, All right. is there any blemishes on the car? They have different standards from PSA 10, which is an absolute perfect car, perfect center, mm-hmm. great eye appeal, gloss, straight corners, sharp, and then PSA 9, they have a printout on it, they be 55, 45 instead of 50, 50, then PSA 8 is a little bit less than that, PSA 7, and then mm-hmm. PSA 1 is a absolute what they call a turd. <laughs> and that's just a straight-up beat-up card, yeah. creases, uh, pinholes in it. For me, it was about getting the best cards. And during the, during the process, when I was with the Reds, especially I would treat myself after going through arbitration, and yes, I get to make this kind of money this year. I was about baseball cards. <laughs> then when I got to Detroit and had a four-year deal, it was like, how many years am I going to be buying baseball cards? And, <laughs> and, I, and I, I started buying cards and also sending cards in to get graded as well. And I had a, a card broker that was buying cards and, and helped build the collection. And the collections wound up selling for about $2.5 million. Your collection did? Yep. Oh my goodness. SCP auctions. Wow. So give me an idea on how many rookie cards or what your collection was up to at some point. What does how much uh, how many cards is two point five million dollars worth? Actually it was roughly around I'd say hundred and fifty cards. All rookies? Yes. And they dated back from the oldest card that I had was Stan Musial's 
48 Bowman rookie, and all the way up to Delman Young. And if anybody know who Delman Young is, that's my little brother, <laughs> former number one pick overall by a Tampa Bay Rays. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Delman in, in a in a moment or two. Do you ever get the but, itch to continue uh, to continue collecting or to get back into I still, it? I still dabble in it a little bit because yeah. during the time that I collected, there's this um, review process where you send the cards in that already graded, and what they do, they look over the card, and if the card seems good enough, they may upgrade the card from its current holder to a different holder. So if the card looks better than advertised, they'll upgrade it to a 10. And I had that done about 60 times during my collecting career. Hmm. And the biggest card happened to be uh, Reggie Jackson's rookie. Wow. 69 cops. You mentioned your brother Delman, you know, obviously an accomplished major leaguer. What's he up to currently? And do you guys get a uh, you guys get a chance to hang out often? I have not seen Delman since before spring training. Wow. Uh, he wound up uh, being designated for assignment with the Orioles. And uh, this was right around the end of June, early July. And he wound up taking the rest of the year off. He was having problems still with his ankle mm-hmm. that he had surgery on two years prior. And now, now he's in the Dominican Republic playing ball, looking to come back in 2015. So he's a, he'll be a free agent then? Yeah, he's a free agent now, and he's playing winter ball in the Dominican. So if he's healthy, he'll be able to help somebody, right? Oh, he definitely. He, he just turned 30. That's amazing. He seems like he's been in the in the big leagues for twenty years. Seems like he's been hearing the name for a long time. That's for sure. For sure. Hey, uh, speaking of family, uh, not a lot of people know that your father was one of the Navy's first African American F fourteen fighter pilots. Yep. Did you now? Did you ever get that kind of career? Any thought? Did you give that career any thought? No, I was afraid of heights. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, the very first, if I could take a second to tell a story here, the very first time I ever traveled with the team, it was in nine or 2000. I went to uh, Minneapolis on the, on the team charter. You were on that team, obviously. And do you remember that flight back where we had to, we had to fly into Louisville? because the weather was so bad yeah it was a bad storm yeah yeah that was my first time and i thought man if this is like this all the time i don't want any part of it and i remember what what aside from everything else the weather the bumpy the incredibly terrifying plane ride was you were in the back of the plane nearly screaming bloody murder because you were (laughs) you were so scared oh Thank you for for making me out to be the coward. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, you weren't the only but, one. But it's true though. I, I was scared. Yeah, you weren't the only one. Trust me. I was probably the loudest. <laughs> hey, you're, is your dad still flying? Yes, he is. He's a, he's a pilot for Delta, right, or one of the airlines? Yes, Delta. He's been a pilot with Delta since '91. Wow. Have you ever like randomly got on a plane and happened to see that 
You know, he was the pilot. No. Well, but one of these days, I, I want to fly abroad with him to Japan and experience some of the live sushi that they have out there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you ever been to Japan? I've been to Japan one time, and that was in high school playing for the area code team that went to Japan and played against the Japan national team and the Korean national team. This was in 1990. Yeah. Which doesn't seem long ago, but then it's 2015, and that was long ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Now that, uh, you know, uh, just a few more things. What we're going to do now, as I know, is you're a, you're a big wrestling fan. You were, uh, yeah. <laughs> you've been looking forward to this segment. You, uh, you were on WWE Survivor Series with Edge in what, 2005, something like that? Yes. How exciting was that for you? That, you know, you know what? That was probably when I got my acting chops in. <laughs> because. You know, well, we can talk about wrestling secrets now since WWE Network talks about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, for a 7 o'clock show, those guys are there around noon, almost like a baseball team. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, they had one of the head writers come in, and they set up a thing with me and Edge, and basically Edge was going to trash Detroit, and I was going to defend Detroit. Right. And some of the things that Edge said, I thought was classic. Talking about the steroids and shooting myself up with hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and but the thing was, before that segment came up, I I forgot all my lines. Oh no. Yes, and and the match before was Ric Flair versus Triple H, which was probably should have been the match of the year. Yeah. They got they were bloody yeah. and oh, everything yeah. inside, outside the ring. And so when everything popped up when it was time to go, it clicked. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be one of those athletes that couldn't pull the pull off the job. Right. Because you've seen wrestling. Oh yeah. Where you see these guys come out there and it's like, ooh. Yeah. Why are you laughing right now? They're talking trash, and you can't even be serious right now, or or they'll botch up the words. That wasn't the case with me. Yeah, you, uh, like you I, uh, to use uh, some baseball jargon, you hit it out of the park. I remember watching that, and I was so proud of you because you did. You nailed the lines, and uh, you know the entire place popped when when you put Edge in his place, pretty much. Yeah. And that was so exciting because afterwards I had to go to the restaurant. And when I went to the back, everybody was like, yeah, great job, great job, no way. <laughs> I was like, okay. Because when we did the rehearsal, we wound up doing a rehearsal outside and they were going over the Survivor Series, how it was going to end with The Undertaker coming out. And I got to meet that guy, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, I can cross that off the bucket list. <laughs> He's your guy. Oh, my God. But when we were going over what we were going to do, Vince McMahon came over and personally showed me and told me how to talk. Really? Talk, told me to talk slow and deliberate so everybody can hear every single word. Also hold the mic right in front of your mouth. Right. Wow, I, 
that sure. that had to be a thrill just for just to get tips from Mr. McMahon. Oh, it was so cool. Him and Triple H and Shane McMahon. They were all over there. They they took the time and 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 told me that. I was like, man, that is very cool. I've been a huge wrestling fan, both WWE, WCW, um, ECW. TNA is kind of weak. Yeah. Uh, Ring of Honor. Yeah. Wow. That's some good stuff right there. There's some good stuff on there. Uh, how about NXT? Love NXT. Love it. That might be my favorite out of all of them. I think it might be mine as well. Is it? I don't. What is it about it that I that that's so appealing? I don't understand. Is it because to me, and if if you, you might agree with this, the WWE product has become almost really watered down, where the NXT product is really fresh. It's uh, the storylines are simple, and it concentrates yeah. on you know the in-ring stuff. I I just I love it. Yeah, and the, and the performers they're getting now, instead of it being developmental, it's almost to the sense where you're getting these great indie wrestlers, and you're just getting them to wrestle the WWE way, mm -hmm. and learning more of the storyline that comes behind it because guys that wrestling like New Japan, for instance, like um, Finn Balor. Yeah, oh yeah. God, that dude's awesome. Yeah. And of course, Kevin Steen, a.k.a. Kevin Owens. Right. Mr. Wrestling himself. Uh, Seth Rollins, a.k.a. Tyler Black. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, Daniel Bryan, um, was Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, uh -huh. the American Dragon. <laughs> I can go on and on. Oh, I know you. All these interesting. I know you can. How about uh, were you happy to see the um, to see Apollo Cruz come into the NXT? Oh yeah! Wow. Uha Nation. Like you know Nation. Uha Nation. Yeah. Uha Nation. That's it. Yeah. And then you got guys like Johnny Gargano and yeah. Tomasa Ciampa and. They, they they do and Samoa Joe. Let's not forget Samoa Joe. Oh, can't forget Samoa Joe. Yeah. So with that being said, what is the best and worst things about WWE's current product? The best thing about WWE's current product is having fresh faces have an opportunity to get to the top. The bad thing is having some of the veterans still get these big matches where clearly they're not entertaining anymore. I like Big Show. I like Kane. Mm -hmm. I like Mark Henry. You know, these faster, smaller guys. And I thought Seth Rollins was small until he was standing over Shawn Michaels this past Monday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, dang, how short is Shawn Michaels then? Because I thought Seth Rollins was about like six feet. Right. <laughs> and he was like, he was about six two. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, yeah, again, it's, it seems like the, you see the same, you know, if you've seen one John Cena versus Dolph Ziggler match, you've seen it once or twice every month. It just seems like they need to get some, some new material in there. Yeah, why don't they have the feels like they did in the 80s and 90s where they meant something? They're trying to do it with Bray Wyatt and Roman Reigns, but 
it, it doesn't have that same like '80s appeal. Like Macho Man Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Like that feud went on for like what about six, six, eight months before oh. the match at WrestleMania. Oh, almost like yeah. They, I mean, you'd have these feuds that would last a year. How about uh? How about uh, when Flair and Steamboat in '89, when they would they had a series Ooh, of three yeah. matches when it lasted almost a full year. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying with that. That th- those feuds, that slow burn, and it, you're right, it did mean something. But you know, that's back when. Today it's a television product. Back then it was a you know more storyline you know oriented in my in my view. Yeah, bad guys were bad guys, and good guys were good guys. Yeah, that's right. Dimitri Young, it's been a pleasure. I want to have you on here again. We'll resume talking some wrestling. But as far as first guests go, I couldn't have picked a a better one. You are my main man. I'm going to have uh, Pokey on soon, too, so I'm going to tell him, you know, you've set set the bar high. So, hey, man, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, keep in touch and... I hope that you uh you, you would like to appear again here on the Better Off Red podcast. I, I would love to. And when you talk to Pokey Reese, a.k.a. Grandpapa, <laughs> tell him I said hi. I absolutely <laughs> will. I sure will. Dimitri, hey, thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. You're welcome, Jamie. Okay. Bye-bye. What a great pleasure it was to have Dimitri Young lift the lid on the Better Off Red podcast. I'm not sure we could have chosen a better guest to get us started, and I'm very happy he told the Deion Sanders story. You can follow Dimitri on Twitter at DemeatHookYoung. That's D-A Young. I hope you'll join us next week as we'll chat with Reds Hall of Famer Jim Maloney. The music you heard on the podcast this week was from J.D. McPherson's new album entitled Let the Good Times Roll. It's available now on iTunes. A very special thanks to Dimitri Young and to our technical director, Nick Prince, without whom this podcast wouldn't exist. That's all from BOR headquarters. I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news.